This podcast is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson of Central Pennsylvania, which is currently offering customers a door and window super deal. You can now save $500 on every window and 1000 on every door from May 1st through May 31st. Super indeed. Visit RenewalByAnderson.com to learn more about this deal before it ends. Back when Harrisburg was the region's retail center, someone started killing store owners one by one. The media dubbed it a retail rampage, the merchant murders, and to this day, the identity of the killer has never been revealed. Life reporter John Lucy joins us here now for a special interview episode of Today in PA as we dive deep into his five-part cold case investigation series into The Shopkeeper Killer. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. So you started getting an interest in this story when you were working on the Murder House series last fall, correct? Absolutely, yeah. I called uh, the district attorney, Fran Chardo, and I wanted him to take a look at the Murder House case and how it was investigated and also just as a long shot to see if there were any records at the county level that were still around. And he just happened to mention, hey, if you like cold cases, I got another one. And he told me about this shopkeeper serial killer who was striking mom and pop store owners back in the early 60s. And on the record, it's still unsolved. And it was hitting some prominent families uh, of Harrisburg at the time. So it really just stuck in my mind. And when we really wanted to really focus on some more true crime stories from Central PA, this was first on the list to tackle. Why do you think he suggested this one to you right off the bat? It came to his radar by the family member of a former district attorney from Dolphin County uh, who handled the case back in the 1960s. Ironically, this same DA was a relative of one of the victims of the shopkeeper killer. His uncle was a shoe store owner who was shot dead in his Harrisburg shoe store, and he became the third victim of this shopkeeper serial killer, which then spawned the biggest manhunt in Harrisburg history to find him. That was Locke, correct, Martin Locke? Martin Locke was the DA from the 60s, and his uncle was Morris Locke, who was killed in the shoe store by the killer. And he was the third victim, right? He was the third victim in May of 63. Do you think that, since there was two previous killings before him, that the media kind of really attached themselves to the story after such a high-profile person's relative became involved? I think after the second one, and it became a clear pattern, they linked the guns. It was a a twenty-two, which is the can be really fit in the palm of your hand, easily concealed. Mm-hmm. And what makes it so lethal? This guy was doing uh, headshots with these guns, and uh, the bullet leaves this small hole going in, but does lots of damage when it gets into the brain and the skull. I mean, it it, it doesn't exit, and it kind of just ricochets in there and apparently does maximum brain damage so it's it's pretty lethal even even though it's a small ordinarily 
looking weapon. But after that second killing in April, I think that's when the media really said, hey, we have 18 months now of a retail rampage or something. Something's going on. This was the same killer with the same MO, no witnesses, hitting the stores during daylight when they were empty. You know, it's like he was casing these joints as well. This was this was a cunning predator. Yeah, he the fact that he also targeted these men as soon as their backs were turned, I think it was either Chandler or it was Locke, where he waited for him to get a product and then he just point blank shot him in the back of the head. It's very calculative, yes. which you point out in your story multiple times is so shocking because Harrisburg was such a center of retail back in the day, which is what people seem to forget. Do you think that, you know, given today, with everything that goes on with crime, do you think people could still get shocked by a story like this today or was it still just a totally different time? I think it was a different time because, you know, I, I was able to reach Martin Locke's sons who were also attorneys in Harrisburg mm -hmm. and they were teenagers uh, back at the time of, uh, the, you know, the merchant murders. And they did recall a Harrisburg that was more genteel. They said his father uh, had maybe uh, five or six homicides a year and most of them were knifings, they weren't shootings. And uh, there was an explosion of violence in, uh, in Harrisburg in the, in the early 70s. And uh, Fran Chardo attributes this to sort of the first dose of sort of the heroin uh, trade. But up until that time, this was a pretty peaceful community. And it wasn't just department stores downtown. There were mom and pop stores of every description all over the city. And it was really this neighborhood, small town feel that was still present, even though at the time it was a bigger population center. There was more people living in the city, but doing so reasonably peacefully, at least according to the crime stats. Do you think that this was kind of almost an ominous portending of the future of Harrisburg because it was so relatively calm and it was very mom and pop and family oriented of what Harrisburg was about to become? Yeah, it's almost the twilight of what sort of uh, America middle-sized cities used to be where yeah. they were, you know, great downtown stores that were independent. They weren't chain stores, family owned, very distinctive. Uh, each town having its own flavor and its own sort of attraction that would draw people downtown and people still living in the city, different ethnic groups all in one sort of city before everything became about the suburbs and space and backyards and two car garages and strip malls and then malls and then, you know, the whole sprawl that where it was the flight out of the cities. You had to be, uh, to, to really have the American dream then became to live outside the city. It's so interesting because my both my parents are from the Bronx and it was the same exact thing where during the 70s and the 80s, the crime was just so outrageous. People started to flock. There was this mass exodus out of the city, which I'm sure was probably a nationwide phenomenon at the time, kind of similar to what happened in the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, for a different reason, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And, and now the, the residual effect of the COVID is that what's left is 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 a lot of uh, crises, drug crises, homeless crises. Oh, that yeah. makes those who remain in the cities even more uh, dealing with problems, you know what I mean? Making it less livable. Yeah, exactly. And in cities like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, with the violence and crime, it's just also absolutely outrageous. 
right? So it's kind of as right. if history's repeating itself a little bit for different reasons. In, yeah, for a different reason. Yeah, for a different reason. I think I think this, uh, you know, the '60s and in this, it was this aspirational thing, this suburbs, this uh, you know, everybody getting cars, and you know, the post-war period, you know, the the prosperity. This was considered a sign of prosperity if you could live in the suburbs. You know, there was this aspirational thing, thinking it was, hey, the space age, we're going to propel ourselves out to the suburbs and, and live large, so to speak. You know, kind of going off of that, you mentioned it a bit in one of the parts of the story. There's this backdrop of the coming of 60s hippie counterculture. And you note that a lot of the suspects the police bring in were young kids. Why do you think there was yeah. such a focus on youth in this case? Do you think it's because of that or were police just grasping at straws because they had nothing else to go off of? Well, early on in the case, the first couple shootings, they were really combing through the parole records. I think the earmarks of the crime, the fact that this was, uh, he didn't hesitate to kill either victim. He picked a low risk target. He entered the store when no one else was around, showed a pretty uh, experienced criminal. So I think early on, they were looking at somebody who might've robbed before and was out on parole and in fact but that focus they solved a lot of other crimes at the time they they were able to close a lot of other cases by focusing on these parolees and that type of thing but i think after it it, it really began to snowball and the third killing uh you know the da's uncle and the fact that there were it was more of a neighborhood setting and there were kids all around they really started looking at anyone and everyone and certainly when you go to the fourth killing which was in uh, Allison Hill at sort of like a what we now would call a convenience store that trafficked in candy and soda and attracted kids in and out all day long. That's when the focus really shifted to the kids and, and in fact led to the unfortunate arrest of two young black teen girls who didn't really get a fair uh, treatment by the law. Allison Hill, wasn't that also where the murder house was? Yeah, different, uh, you know, similar. Yeah, it's this is sort of the State Street and 13th, uh, Derry Streets, a few streets over, but but kind of in the same block, you yeah. know what I mean? But it would be, you know, because that was like 14th and Derry, this is 13th and uh, State Street. Interesting. Well, that, that kind of gives to how well with these stories, these cold case investigations that you flesh out so well is the passage of time and how things get buried and the way that these right. neighborhoods change. Why do you think that some neighborhoods that have so much promise end up going south, kind of like the Allison Hill neighborhood or just Harrisburg in general? Yeah, because, you know, certainly, uh, you know, at the turn of the century when the murder house uh, happened in the early 1900s, I mean, Allison Hill was considered the trendy place to be in Harrisburg. It was this sort of hill overlooking the entire city. It was it, it was formerly farmland that was it was actually considered somewhat of a suburb, even though it was within the city. And then, you know, you fast forward to now and it's it's a neighborhood in transition that went through some really hard times. And unfortunately, the hardest of the times has been just prolific gun violence to the point where one girl's murder back in the early 1900s could shock an entire city. Mm -hmm. But you walk a couple blocks in, in Allison Hill now and you can't help but pass a couple memorials to victims of violence. You know, almost on any block in, in Allison Hill, there's some kind of uh, fading vigil to uh, to somebody who fell victim to homicide. 
Do you think there's any type of crime left that could truly shock the nation or even just a city in general? Because I feel like sometimes I read stories about what goes on in New York. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. It is. Yeah. And it's, it is unfortunate we get we're jaded. I, I do think in Harrisburg being a political town, uh, a political crime could could shock people. <laughs> Yeah. And, and uh, you know, some type of twisted sexual crime or anything involving kids or young, you know, young, young kids would 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 certainly uh, incenses, I think. Oh, definitely. It's just it's just interesting to me because I remember, I believe it was back in October. There was this case that was developing in Texas where a man who was working at elder care homes killed about 24 old women and mm. it just kind of fizzled out. And I remember kind of waiting on the edge of my seat for more information to pop up and for it to explode. But it just kind of never came to fruition in the news or it was never really covered. So I, I find it interesting because that was a serial killer case. And it almost as if in the in the 70s, you had Jeffrey Dahmer and all those other guys and they were so sensational in the media. But today it's just almost we brush it off and there's no more, you know. Isn't Shock. that sad when even in our serial killers become mundane? Yeah, it's it's very telling of the time, which is interesting because there's such an obsession with true crime these days. To this day, it's been a decades-long obsession. So the fact that we right. had a real-time serial killer and no one really seemed to blink over it, it I think is very, very telling. Right. We want our serial killers to be diabolical Hannibal Lecter types. Yeah. And when they turn out to be dimwits preying on the most vulnerable they're just not as uh you know scary i guess i don't know what i don't know what the answer to that is but it is a sad commentary one of the things i also really liked about this series is you really seem to delve into the cop work big time and it kind of goes to show you the just the extent of police investigation based on very small factors such as you know Locke came to the conclusion that this man was non-threatening whoever he was because people felt comfortable enough to turn around and turn their backs to him when he came into the store to shoot them do you what are your opinions overall on the police investigation of the case and you know how Harrisburg cops handled it at the time. I think it started out correctly. I, I think they were really on to something by focusing on parole records and the fact that this guy didn't just start with with this series of uh, robbery homicides, that he had been working his way up and actually might have uh, honed his craft and took it up a notch to murder simply because previously he was caught. You know what I mean? So I think they were right there, but I do think it does kind of go off the rails as the cases pile up and the desperation, for lack of a better word, mounts. And by the fourth one, which may or may not be tied in with the first three, probably is not. Even in Harrisburg, they didn't have any suspects. And then all of a sudden there's this York case of an elderly woman shopkeeper who wasn't shot. She was assaulted and died months later after the assault. Suspects from that case are offered up to Harrisburg and they pounce without perhaps, it, it almost seemed like those suspects were shoehorned into this case. Yeah, they were, they were forced to fit. Right, forced to fit. Do you think that what added to the mounting police pressure was not only the increased news coverage, but because there was Martin Locke's 
uncle involved in the case? I think it, it had to be a factor. But now, according to talking to uh, I talked to Leroy Zimmerman, who mm-hmm. was an assistant D.A. under Martin Locke, and he would later become the first elected attorney general in the state. And he's ki- still a con- considered a, um, a practicing attorney with a you know a legendary career. He insists Martin Locke was so low key and by the book that he would not have been in any corners to try to solve this case, even with his uncle being one of the victims. The same goes for both of his attorney sons who maintained that this guy was a straight arrow. He was he was in the Pacific Theater in World War II. He wow. under fire, raised uh, sort of sitting on the floor of his grandfather's um, Yiddish library, listening to all these rabbis debate scripture. I mean, this guy was as straight as they came, and he had a reputation of dealing with all offenders, regardless of their circumstance, fairly. So according to them, he would not have uh, bent or bowed to the pressure. But certainly when these suspects were offered by the York County DA and then Harrisburg detectives who grilled these two teen girls without an attorney present, claimed that they had confessed, it was hard to resist uh, taking that case. So with the case starting out strong and the fact that Harrisburg was a relatively calm city during this time, what do you think contributed to the difficulty in catching this guy, especially since they were combing through all these paroles and catching people for unrelated crimes? What do you think really, really kept the cops from solving these murders? I think it had to be the coolness of this guy, a a wolf in sheep's clothing, Mm. totally non-suspicious. If he can walk into the luncheonette after there was a killing in January, it's, it's now spring, and this guy has no qualms about giving this guy his back, or if he can go less than a month later into a shoe store and get the shoe store owner who was keeping a knife in the store precisely because he was aware of this shopkeeper killer. If he can get this guy to turn his back to get a, a, a box of loafers off the shelf, and who knows, maybe he had prior relationships in, in some of these places. Do you think that it was all about the money for him? Because he left a few dollars behind in some cases, correct? Well, the one case he left around $700 behind. Now, that was probably a different uh, in a different location in a different bag. But he would always clean out the register and he would normally rip the wallet out of the back of their pants. Uh, He did leave some money in uh, Locke's pants or his wallet or maybe the front of his pants. But normally he would get everything. But there was one one of the cases where he missed $700, which was in a paper sack somewhere else in the store and he didn't have time, perhaps, to get the shoe store owner's cash in his pants. Perhaps because apparently that day in Midtown, it was a Friday afternoon in May, weather perfect. It was teeming with people and somebody could have walked in that store at any moment. Well, that kind of shows his ballsy side too, though, because if he could just walk in with a group of people on a nice day and still do what he did, that does kind of contribute to the eerie coolness of this guy. Yes, definitely. This this guy was something else. And of course, there's a major twist at the end of the series, which we can't give away, that he may have ultimately been known to police. And we'll leave it there uh, on how this whole thing resolves. Officially, it's still a cold case, but maybe not. Ooh, everybody listening will just have to find out by reading it. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you, John, for this interview and coming on today in PA today. The five-part series is live as of Monday, June 20th. And when's the last part coming out? It's going to run that entire week, one installment a day that reads like a good chapter in a mystery novel. So it'll be one a day throughout the week, concluding on the Friday. So if you if you don't have time to read it during the week, take it with you on your weekend getaway plans. It, it will definitely uh, keep you spellbound, I think. Yes, I've read it and I can certainly attest to that. Thank you again, John, and have a nice evening. You too, Claudia. Appreciate it. This podcast is brought to you by Renewal by Anderson of Central Pennsylvania, which is currently offering customers a door and window super deal. You can now save $500 on every window and $1,000 on every door from May 1st through May 31st. Super indeed. Visit RenewalByAnderson.com to learn more about this deal before it ends.